0: Good evening, Leland. Evening, Shannon, to you. And we're learning a lot more about that operation from the beginning to the end. It resulted in the death of Qasem Soleimani. It went far beyond a drone strike and included U.S. Army special operations soldiers on the ground that actually followed his convoy half a mile behind when the missile from the reaper drone hit they were on the scene within a minute or two immediately following the drone strike they did what in the business is called a bomb damage assessment and took pictures of the scene along with confirming that the drone got the right car and soleimani was dead Many of the pictures we have obtained include graphic and close-up pictures of the Iranian general's body. We're not going to show you those tonight. They're simply too gruesome. He is missing limbs and is grossly disfigured. A source who both served in Iraq and saw the pictures noted that Soleimani died in much the same way the Americans he killed died. Abu Bakr
1: al-Baghdadi, the world's most wanted and brutal terrorist, dead after a daring raid by the elite U.S. to force. He was the founder and leader of ISIS, the most ruthless and violent terror organization anywhere in the world. 5 p.m. Saturday night, President Trump flanked by Vice President Pence, National Security Advisor O'Brien and Defense Secretary Esper gathering in the Situation Room with military brass, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, all watching a live step-by-step feed of the mission. Eight Chinook helicopters took off on the secret mission from a Kurdish-controlled area in Iraq, flying low and taking on gunfire before landing in northern Syria. Baghdadi fled into an underground tunnel with three children. The president today speaking of the mission in stark detail. He died after running into a dead-end tunnel whimpering and crying and screaming all the way. But before the special operations team could get to him, Baghdadi detonated a suicide vest he was wearing. The three children killed alongside him. His body was mutilated by the blast. The tunnel had caved in on it in addition force was on the ground for roughly two hours in a firefight with Baghdadi's men, killing two of his wives, who were also wearing suicide vests, although they did not detonate. At 7.15 p.m., the call came into the situation room from those on the ground, saying 100% confirmation, jackpot, over. We took highly sensitive material and information from the raid, much having to do with ISIS origins, future plans, things that we very much want.
2: Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special guest on with me for this week's podcast. It's Eric Mier- Uh He served in the U.S. military for 29 years. Uh, he is a Veterans advocate, and he does a bunch of work uh you know highlighting uh veterans' health issues mental health issues and and uh you know sort of the tolls of working at such a high level for long periods of time um Eric, it's uh, great to have you on
3: uh, same here John here. I appreciate the opportunity to uh come online with you thank you
2: all right so uh you've done a whole bunch of things in your career we're gonna get into it. Uh, let's talk about your time before the military. Um, where are you from, and what was your home like life?
3: Okay, so I'm uh, I'm from Hialeah. Um, it's right next to Miami, which is what everybody kind of knows. So, um, you know, parents immigrated uh, from Cuba in the mid 1971. Um, my mom came with me, pregnant, um, into Hialeah, and that's essentially where where I grew up and and was raised until um, I decided to 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 leave and, and, join the military.
2: Okay. Um, and in that area, I, I know Miami specifically, but in that area, is it a, a heavy sort of Cuban, uh, immigrant community?
3: Uh, absolutely. Yeah. For, for Hialeah, definitely. It's kind of our, um, our bridge into, into the United States, uh, in particular during, during that time. So it was, um, yeah, very, he- uh, heavy Cuban culture, uh, matter of fact I grew up you know at home speaking Spanish and English um, so culturally as well just seeing everything from the lens of of Cuba and the United States
2: and like as you were growing up uh, were you made aware of um, you know the situation in Cuba the politics like did your parents speak about it at all or or family speak about it
3: you know that's a that's a great question they they did um, at the age of Eight, I actually traveled, um, back to Cuba mm. with my mom and my grandmother. Um, and I think a friend of the family. And, but prior to that, I, um, I became aware of it because it was taught in school. So I, I went to a, um, uh, my first schools K through, I think even fifth grade were a, uh, joint cuban american you know bilingual school but we we learned politics and we learned you know what was going on um from academically if you would as a young kid you know not that we paid too much attention uh but at home um what became evident uh were, were two things um uh, the difficulty uh to call home to uh, to call back to cuba and talk to family um that was always z- almost zero i don't ever recall ever talking to and i think there might have been like Eight aunts and uncles that that stayed back in Cuba, um, and so did my biological father. So communications was was almost zero. Um, so that became evident that there was something going on there. Uh, and the second part is um, at least when I got there, um, and you know some of my family members, and later on who became sort of my father figure, um, who had done work for the government, um, it was always very hush hush about talking about anything bad about Cuba or. Or what you said, and later on, I, you know, became to know that it's just because of all the Cuban officers and all of the issues that we had uh, that are running around, but probably still in Miami right now. So that uh, we kind of grew up not trusting each other, if you would. Um, and I do remember the stories of, of at least uh, I think it was my grandmother telling me of of um, an uncle who got in, um, imprisoned um, for saying something bad about the Cuban government. So yeah.
2: Yeah, um, you know, obviously it's it's something that's taught in schools when you talk about, um, you know, Cuba and, the, and Castro and Che Guevara taking over. Um, you know, then you had like the Bay of Pigs, which was a disaster. Um, and then a ton of Cubans left in the, the 60s and 70s and so on. Yep. Um, and then obviously Miami is a I, I'm not sure if it's like Miami or New Jersey is the number one spots in the U.S. that have uh, Cuban immigrants. Um, my aunt, uh, who my, who my uncle married, uh, she was born in Cuba and then came here, I think in the seventies. Okay. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, um, every Thanksgiving we kind of get together. So it's like a, a, a mix up of like Polish American and, uh, Cuban food for Thanksgiving. So it's pretty nice.
3: <laughs> yeah. That's like, that's like home here now. It's, uh, we got Brazilian mixed. Mm. My wa- my wife's Brazilian with Cuban, and then we have all the, the different folks that come here. That's that, now that makes for a good for a good night.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I, I'm actually drinking a Bustelo right now. Um, <laughs> I so love it. like that's like my go-to, you know, with the the old school mocha pots that go right on the stove. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, so then, at what point did you decide you were going to join the Marine Corps?
3: Okay. Uh, I want to say it was concrete was 11th, 11th grade. I, I think whenever the right, when you, you're allowed to do it, and I think it might've been age, right. Uh, where you're allowed to, to sign. I want to say, I was probably talking to the recruiters probably earlier than that. Um, and the ramp up was I was in silver Air patrol, probably a ninth grader or maybe whatever age I was in. Um, so at some point there, I, I knew I wanted to join the military. Um, and it became much more of it, and I wanted to join the Marine Corps. Um, and I've, you know, I've spoken about it before. You know, you, you know, if you're in high school and you see the the one recruiter that comes in in that uniform, and you know you're out of class and you, and you see down the, the aisle there that a uh, you know, so Marine passed by and, and is dressed blues with all his medals and his, uh, I think I want to say he was a Force Recon Marine that had and came back to recruiting duty, and I saw that and I'm like, okay, that's that's where I want to go. That kind of uh, that image. Of that discipline um, is what I wanted um, so I, I want to say I signed immediately after I was able to um, almost forged you know I was prepared to almost forge my mom's signature but uh, luckily she <laughs> she she caved in and uh, and, um, and and you know and allowed it um, as part of my reasoning was you know trying to give back to this country for uh, for walking uh, welcoming us with open arms.
2: Okay, so what year was it that you went into the Marine Corps?
3: Ninety-one. So in, in uh, September, September twelfth, nineteen ninety-one, I uh, the bus pulled up to uh, Paris Island.
2: Uh, you served for about six years in the Marine Corps. Uh, you were an infantry rifleman, uh, a scout sniper, a fire support man, and an anti tank missile man. Um, you know, tell me about your experiences uh, as a marine
3: okay um you know the, the first immediate capture is uh, I loved it right that that was uh, ingrained into into my DNA of who who I became um as a man leaving the streets of miami Hialeah in, into the military um, and and the journey that 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 started um so you know originally I was supposed to be really quick uh, active my first contract, was uh, active duty. I was going to come in and you know, still within the infantry route. And I wanted to do, uh, what is it? Fleet anti-security team. So do, you know, embassy guard and uh, anti-terror, uh, kind of like a terror, uh, anti-terrorism team. So that's what I had kind of planned and, and, and maybe some other stuff that I, I had seen from, from the recruiting. Uh, unfortunately, my, my contract got changed um, literally in the summer before I left to basically training to, to the reserves, uh, fortunately it was still in, in, um, st- um still in the reserves, excuse me, uh, within, within infantry. And so when I started, the first job I ended up doing was a, was a tow gunner. I, I had no idea what that was, you know, and, and growing up watching GI Joe and, and, and all of these shows that we watched at that time, um, I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. I get to learn how to, how to, you know, kill tanks or shoot at tanks. Uh, so that was the first, that was my MOS training was a, a tow gunner. Um, so it was pretty cool. Came back, went to my first unit was in, in Miami, um, as a tail gunner. Um, those guys had just came back, um, or recently from, from, from the Gulf war from desert storm. And I was like, man, uh, you know, this was pretty cool getting, to see all these old salty guys. And then, uh, I think I did like one, one rotation to 29 palms and got to shoot a tail gun. Um, but then realized that during that process, I was still trying to get back on, uh, on active duty. And it was just it was just a challenge, right? And this became the six year, five and a half year, uh, road was how do I get back on active duty and continue with, with my goals, um, of serving in the military and then into the future. I kind of, I knew I wanted to go and, and get a degree. Um, and I wanted to serve, you know, either in the FBI, or one of the intelligence communities. Um, but then as a tow gunner, I was like, okay, this is not working. So I ended up going to um, West Palm Beach. There was a, a fourth Anglican So that's kind of where I worked. Um, I learned to become a, a fire support man. Um, and that was great because that's actually, that unit was was busy. And so they sent me to airborne school, which was great. So that got me back in uh, on track. And then when I came back from that, I got the opportunity to go to Pathfinder School, which I had no idea what that was as a Marine, but I, I passed that and I'm like, okay, you know what? I really enjoying my time serving as a Marine and, 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 and continuing to get some of this training, but that, that, that down and ended up uh, and then I'll wrap this up, ended up going um, with the job opportunity to New Orleans and in New Orleans is where I joined um, the scout. It's well, it's a surveillance and target acquisition uh, team that was there um and so that was great because there um, I ended up serving and doing all the training uh, as a scout sniper. Um, now, again, this is still mid 1995. There isn't, I mean, this is, you, you have to look at it from a different perspective. So this is post, uh, you know, Gulf War, post Vietnam and obviously pre uh, G Watt. So the most that I got involved in um, was doing a lot of training, which was great. Um, and then I got to do some, you um, Joint Task Force 6, it's a counter drug operations and predominantly in the the mountains of California. And I got to do about a month or two month rotations into there. And that was an eye opener. Um, So I I would say from all the the jobs that I did, um, supporting that JTF 6 was probably what, um, and I know it did. It it helped shape me as a Marine as then um, what I would learn, uh, things that I would learn into the future. So I'll stop right there.
2: Okay. So then, uh, after you, uh, you finished up there, had you, at this point, were you deciding, you know, maybe I should go join the army or like, how was that for you? No,
3: that's great. Yeah. So the, the last effort when, when I was in, uh, in the last unit in the Marines, um, I was ending up as a, as a dependent and my former spouse was going to the Defense Language Institute uh, she had joined the National Guard in Florida. So part of her training was to go go to DLI to learn Arabic. And so, you know, as a, as a spouse, um, I was going to transfer to one of the recon units that's up in Reno, Nevada. And so as soon as I got uh, to DLI, uh, if you've ever heard about it, just this, you know, it's, it's, it's it at that point for me, And I think, I, you know, whatever age I was, um, young 20s, um, I, I saw this school. I, I, I learned what it was about. Um, and that's when I decided I had to make the hard decision to go. Okay, yeah, that, I love the Marine Corps. Marine Corps is everything for me. Um, now that I'm married, it's just too challenging to try to get back on active duty. Um, so I looked at at options to go into the Army, um, and because of my former spouse and, and 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 that school, that's when I I come to learn about uh, you know Army and Army military intelligence, and in particular being a linguist because that's what would allow me. Um, to to go to the LI and sort of you know uh, start a new t- trajectory here, um, so that's when I decided to to jump uh, unfortunately jump ship, um, and it was from one day to the other you know leaving leaving the Marine Corps um, and then uh, being in the Army as a what they call a careerist, um, and that's where I started my journey um, in the Army.
2: Okay, so then you join the Army, um, and then you go straight into. Uh, working at 7th Special Forces Group, uh, but not as a Green Beret, as a, a sort of a, a specialized um, intel role?
3: Correct, correct. Yeah, so the um, as soon as I switched over to the Army, uh, within weeks, they um, the first part was to do language, so that worked out. So I was able to uh, – originally I was going to learn um, Arabic um but that didn't work out for timing. So ironically, I ended up going <laughs> to fix my 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 Spanglish mm-hmm. at DLI to learn proper Spanish. So I, I stayed there for, for six months, um, did did my my Spanish and then went to the pipeline to be a um what's called an, at that point the MOS was a ninety eight golf a, a signature electronic warfare specialist. So um I did that training that might have been like six or nine months. Um, and at the last part of the training, um, school, I got, um, connected with someone that knew folks at Seventh special forces group. And I believe at that time they, they were in need of, uh, of people. Um, and, and in, in, in particular, I want to say those that, that had airborne. And so that worked out perfect for me. So that person vouched for me and, you know, contacted whomever it was in, in, in the army. And then I was able to get my first assignment, into seventh special forces group, and and to your point, yes, it was um, what was called a SADE, as special operations team Alpha. It's a it's a support element within within the Green Berets that provide um, signals intelligence support um, to the ODA teams and um, and in some capacities to the intelligence community.
2: So that schooling that you did is that run by special forces or is this run by the army, and then they they kind of send people where they need to.
3: Yeah. It's, it's uh, it's actually a joint. It's the, um, it's an air force. I want to say it's like an air force um, base It's good fellow. Um, and then there was like a follow on piece. Um, mm. Yeah. So it, you know, it's the army pipeline for, for that course to become, you know, a 98, a 98 golf, which was, um, which is interesting because during that time, actually our focus was more, um, you know, great power competition so, uh, you know so predominantly you know Cuba russia Chinese uh, China if you would um so my my and counter narcotics which is what was taught um uh, at this
2: school okay and what year was this
3: that was 99 I say so it was 19 oh, no I'm sorry that's when I left to the unit so 97 to 98 so I got to seventh special Forces Group right at you know early 98
2: Okay. And, um, and what was your experience there, you know, working with those guys and, and, and doing that job?
3: You know, I, I loved it. I I loved, I was very fortunate. Um, and this is when the 7th Special Forces Group was actually at, at Fort Bragg. So the, the um, the military, yeah, the military intelligence uh, detachment, um, you know, had supported three different battalions. And I want to say I supported the first battalion, um, I know they were great. They were they. they um, it, it was it was a simpler life. Again, it wasn't GWAT, so guys weren't overly uh, burnt out except by doing exercises. Um, a lot of them were um, guys that had come from strategic um, uh, uh, posts where they had worked at NSA or or different outposts around the world doing uh, you know uh, SIGINT and uh, work. And so I, I got to learn a lot from the guys that were there and, and learn the craft of, of actually being, you know, an intelligence professional of actually doing, uh, SIGINT. And then, um, and that's when I first got my first taste at, uh, at working, um, with, with the, the SIGINT community and, and the development of capabilities. The ODAs were great. Um, I got to go to Panama, um, Panama, Colombia and Ecuador. And Ecuador is when I, when we actually, when I got shot, um, uh, supporting one of the foreign intelli- uh, foreign foreign internal uh, defense missions that we were doing with one of the ODAs, but I had no issues. It was a great uh, it was a great environment. Uh, the only thing was, you know, there there were guys that um, that were MI guys that wanted to be Green Berets, and that that was my first exposure um, to special operations to the SF community. Um, and it, you know, it not, I don't want to say it wasn't, it's something that didn't interest me, but I really did enjoy the military intelligence side of it because, um, that's why I came into the army for, um, and, you know, I wanted to kind of ride that wave, uh, so when I would have gotten out, uh, to have joined the intelligence community. So yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a great preparation for me.
2: Okay. So, okay. So you said a few interesting things there, um, so your your intentions, like when you joined the Army the entire time, you thought, you know, I'll do this and then I'm going to get out and, and join the intelligence community at some point. Correct. Okay. Um, so then, uh, you know, we'll get into it a little deeper, but you mentioned uh, that at the time that you were there at Bragg, um, you know, guys weren't experiencing that burnout yet. Um, and so you believe that, you know, this this burnout that happens – that is uh, caused by the actual war itself and the deployments to the war zones and stuff like that.
3: Uh, absolutely, um, you know, and that's because I've lived it for twenty. Well, let's just say I, I spent twenty years in it. When it started, I was already at, at the uh, at the organization where I spent twenty years at. Um, you know. So that, I think I can formulate a good understanding to say to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um now the the you know Seventh Special Forces Group was busy uh because that's when they were focused on counter counter narcotics, right? So counter narcotics and I'm not sure how much counterinsurgency we did, but it was definitely counter narcotics. So those guys were busy. But it wasn't it wasn't the same. You know, the the only um and I'm glad you mentioned it's like the only a thing that I remember that that was causing issues was we actually, as I was getting ready to leave uh, seventh group, um, there was a guy that came that came in, um, and and this guy uh, unfortunately to to, to quit, um, you know, and died by suicide. He actually got killed himself in mm. in one of the guys that I worked with on the side A, and, and I think he was like a master sergeant, and so this this guy came in, you know, he was moody, grumpy. Um, you know, people would, you know, said things about him and, 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 I was still fairly, I was like an E4 or an E5 and I had no understanding of what post-traumatic stress was. You know, all, all you knew is people were either being an asshole or they were a drunk or they were having, you know, issues with their family. Cause that's what, that's what stuck out. Right. Um, but this guy, this guy took his life. Um, and he lived with one of the guys was one of my peers that he lived with. Subsequently, so later on I find out is actually, he came from the special missions unit community. Um, and he had burnt out, uh, in one form or the other, um, with that line of work. So it was interesting. It was my sort of opening or looking through that, that glass of what the, of what the world, um, at at these capacities would be.
2: So you mentioned that you got shot, um, in, uh, South America, I think, uh, was that like on a, on a mission or on duty or, or off duty?
3: No, no, that was on duty. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that was so. The, this one was a cool one because this one was um, so. Seventh group was working with um, the Ecuadorians, and so the the whole doing um, doing a FID mission, right? And it was going to be in the Putumayo uh, region. So it's kind of like the the tri-border, if you would, the region where between Colombia and Ecuador. And so the year prior to that, I had worked um, Colombia, so I knew about you know the ELN and the FARC and the a, a narco terrorist and and sort of all of that, so I had been exposed to that, um, and so we had flown into Quito, and we were going to do I don't know it was like a huge convoy of maybe I don't know twenty something vehicles between buses and and trucks that carried uh, all the equipment that that was needed for the FID mission, and so my mission on um, on that deployment, the first part of it um, was to you know with the company provide. Um, SIGINT protection, electronic warfare, more SIGINT protection during the route, right? So as we, because it was, it's known to be, you know, somewhat hostile, um, not hostile, excuse me, that there would be the potential um, in particular with, you know, such a large convoy. So my role was from Quito all the way to the Putumayo to provide that, um, that SIGINT overwatch in in the lead vehicle with the commander, Sergeant Major, um, and I think it was like an 18 Delta uh, SF medic that was with a senior guy. Um, and so probably three quarters of the way into the route, um, you know, being being, soft, being uh, that region, there was a lot of uh, kidnappings. There was a lot of, um, you know, stealing for money and, and drugs and, and just a variety of nefarious activities. And uh, I want to say we we got caught in it. Uh, and this was during a, a small bridge crossing uh, but it was a choke point. And there um, it was assessed to either be the ELN or the FARC um, that were working, that were taking um, one of the you know, politicians um, hostage. Um, and they were just robbing. And it was just right on that bridge. And so as we kind of come around you know, the mountainside, uh, the little ridge, um, they were there. They were doing their activity. We stumbled across them. Um, I, you know, I had gotten somewhat indications that uh, from a second perspective that there was some activity going on that just was sort of out of the normal, but coming around then, and that's when we started to get uh, fired upon and and sort of a short little battle sort of ensued. Um, But as we were exiting the vehicle to be able to, to provide cover and and fire back, um, as I was jumping for cover, um, that's when I got shot in the leg. Um, Yeah, that was my, my first experience uh, in, into combat.
2: And was this like in a, a jungle sort of terrain or?
3: It, it was, it was on, it was more mountainous. Uh, so it was like one of these one way roads, you know, that's then you you have like those little bridge you know, it almost seemed like a wooden bridge. So yeah, I mean, up and down the mountains was uh, not full jungle, but we were right next to the jungle. Um, so it's a, there was a pipeline. So it's, you know, running along the pipelines, I would go from, from major city to major city.
2: Okay. So, you know, later on in, in the GWAT, um, Afghanistan and then Iraq, uh, T triple C became very prominent. Um, and I think to some extent before the wars really kicked off, uh, the, there was a medic in in whatever platoon or, or, um, uh, team, and they were the, the, the guys that handled everything. Eventually, um, the, you know, an entire team got trained up on, on bleeding control and, and tourniquet use. Uh, when you got shot, were you, uh, did they apply a tourniquet or what was that like?
3: Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, I don't remember a tourniquet. I I, I really don't. Um, and it may have just been because I was fortunate. So it, it came in through, uh, it was my right leg, inner thigh, uh, towards my groin. So it was a uh, through and through, um, you know, and so when, when the medic, I think after a few minutes uh, jumped in the ditch with me um, and had done the second assessment. I did the first assessment on myself. Um, yeah, there was bleeding uh, but, and, but no, he didn't apply it. I think he, he did put a dressing, he did, you know, uh, pressure dressing on it. Uh, but there was, I, I don't recall it, tourniquets. I don't remember post that having one, but uh, yeah, that's the first time I've ever thought about, about that with, uh, with all the training with tourniquets and carrying those around that, uh, that none was applied at that point. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad whoever invented it. And now this just has become standard, you know, God, God bless him.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, y- your time there sort of came to an end at what point did you decide that you wanted to go the special missions route?
3: Um, you know, it's funny cause I, I had no idea what that was. Uh, and again, and this is even uh, being in Fort Bragg, I didn't even know who who the other SMUs were. Uh, I was, you know, focused on sort of the SF mission and on the intelligence mission because at the same time, and that's a that's kind of what's not known. And, and I appreciate the opportunities. You know, the guys at at at, at these um, special forces unit, the the intelligence guys, they're constantly staying um, abreast of what is going on in the intelligence community with regards to their specializations, either being SIGINT. CUMINT, uh, G-O-N, OSINT, um, so it's that kind of cross-pollination. So I really didn't know what they were. Um, but towards the end, I ended up getting roped into a, a JSOC exercise. And at that point, I didn't, I didn't even know what JSOC was. Um, I had, you know, we had these group cadres that or these folks that came uh, to 7th Group, uh, had talked to the command, and essentially it was you know, what I would then learn to be either uh, you know, all, once or twice a year um, exercises. They came in looking for specific people to play rabbits for uh, for the JSOC exercise. Uh, and in particular, they were looking for, you know, for me, little brown guys uh, that can play certain characters um, and that spoke language. So that was actually my first exposure to the JSOC SMU world was being a target um, on one of these elaborate exercises. So I got spun up. I learned to be a character. It was actually one of the I was the senior or I was the senior you know uh insurgentnararco terrorist if you would that uh, they were looking for, and so I got to see from a spa uh, aspect all of these national level capabilities being brought to bear and and in particular, I remember talking to this uh, sergeant major that led, um, led the the rabbits and in particular me and some of the other key targets that had to be put into sensitive sites because of capabilities that were getting thrown into it and so at the end. I don't know what I might have said, or maybe I you know, had said something to, to the effect that, hey, how do I join? How do I go be this? And, and uh, weeks later, month later, um, there was an opportunity that came to my attention um, to apply. Um, and actually, it ended up being post me getting shot, um, or, or right after, I think is when I went to selection. So that was actually when, once I saw what took place in that exercise, and again, it went from, I was already, as a former Marine, in SF already in all, right. The, that, that community was amazing. And then not to see this next layer in this exercise and everything that was done and the attention to details. I'm like, I want to be part of that. And so that's actually when I, when I, um, the recruiters came in, got to pitch, you know, and, and, and just said, yeah, it, how, how do I sign up for this? What, what do I need to do?
2: So when they, uh, you know, when you're speaking to the recruiter, um, and you know, they kind of pitch it to you, Uh, are you made aware of, of sort of uh, what to kind of expect? And, and are you able to kind of train for that? Or do you just show up not knowing what to expect?
3: Yeah, you are, um, let me, how do I phrase this? You know, at that point, like expect nothing, right? Mm. Like, do you want to do this or you don't want to do this? You know, so there is something within that, that short, um, conversation that someone is, you know, uh, um, a recruiter, for ex- for example, is, is trying to ask you if you want to join this ex- you know, organization that does whatever words they, you know, the short amount of words that they used. And it if, if it interests you at whatever psychological level, you're like, yeah, I, w- I want to do that. But there was nothing. Right. So that, I think that's what became for me at that time so mysterious. And so um, and again, I was at least fortunate, I can say, because I saw the inner workings of the exercise. That was some pretty neat stuff. It, it was just you know even within you know green beret or the the sf community it was still much uh, unconventional that I wanted to do that but yeah they they didn't say anything and then the training became uh, I don't think I told anybody many I think maybe my it was my commander the seventh special forces group commander knew that I had gone and applied And then I got some words of wisdom, right? But not much. Um, And later on, I would then learn that that, that's on you. Um, You know, you do a little bit of, you know, you're kind of thinking, uh, you know, hey, what what would I do to go to at a minimum the the comparison? Because I wasn't grouped SFAS, you know, Special Forces Assessment and Selection. So kind of seeing what those guys went through, and that was enough for me. Um, And plus, I I was healing off of um, of being shot. So I think it was right after I came back and finished being hospitalized, I had about six months to get ready. So a lot of that was just physical therapy and then running and walking and just, you know, the, the typical. Um, and and maybe, maybe the side of the, the Marine side of me kind of kicked back in, is that that, that, that mental strength um, and just physical. So, yeah, there, there was no there was no guidance um, till hey, here's here's where you need to be, what place and time. And then and then the adventure starts.
2: And uh, so the, I mean, for the most part, uh, s- some of the the details of the selection are, are obviously secret. Um, but you know, there's been some things over the years that come out about uh, the actual selection itself, or, or guys going through it. Um, are you able to talk about uh, your experience going through the selection in, in any detail, or?
3: Yeah, I mean, I can, you know, so the, I think the key is, in a, and there's been a lot of other uh, SMU guys, and I think you may have interviewed a lot of them. I mean, they'll tell you, like, um, everything you need to know, you'll be taught, right? So it's your ability to uh, understand instructions um, and, and just do it, um, you know, and so – I would say that uh, I enjoyed the process really. Like there were times in you know, the, the 20 years, let's say within 18, 17 years of being operation in the unit, or probably less than that, excuse me, about 14 years um, till I went to more leadership roles. I, I would reflect back on selection um, as the core of what we were looking for, right? So um, yeah, we don't talk about details because I think that, that kind of ruins it and people that try to uh, war game what it is to go to selection, uh, I personally don't want to hear about it. Like I get people that hit me up all the time. um, Hey, what should I do? You know, they try to war game. I'm like, you know, you're probably the person that's not going to get chosen. Mm. Um, You know, you were already told you need to be physically fit. You need to write. There's little basic stuff. Um, And whatever the recruiting and whatever the package tells you, if they, you know, whatever they explain to you, then that's the instructions. Because that's the people we're looking for. So anyone that really tries to war game. Um, I won't tell you that I have enough evidence, but there's, you know, we have seen enough people come through through various pipelines for various organizations, and they don't last very long. Somehow they, they just manage to, you know, cross the line, get selected for whatever reason in time, and then they just don't, they don't last. Um, you got to have that. That kind of innocence, you know what you're got, what what you going to get into, but don't try to war game it uh, because it'll come out. Um, and hopefully that, that kind of answers your question, which is it's the type of people that we look for that are looked for to do this. Um, it's not for everybody. You know, God bless everybody that's tried to, to go through these units. I will tell you that, you know, um, if you ch- tried to cheat or find, you know, work around, um, then you probably would have suffered um, in, in the organization.
2: Yeah, I think um, from, you know, speaking to several guys who had gone through that, um, probably the one of the main takeaways, uh, and, and a few different guys have said this to me, is like, uh, you know, we're not looking for the best guy. We're looking for the right guy. Um, exactly. Yep. Um, and so I, I found that sort of fascinating and the, kind of the psychology behind it. Um, okay, so then you, you passed the uh, – you passed the – the the initial like physical selection part but then there's also the uh uh you know like the operator training course which is another couple of months uh and I think guys can still wash out during that part um and and I know a guy who uh he washed out the first time he went through that he ended up working as a support guy and then he went back and and completed it and then he became an operator uh, did you go straight through like the the whole point or the whole process yeah.
3: Yeah, I went. I went straight through. So, I went in 1999. um, I want to say I did everything in 1991. So, yeah, 1991 went through selection. 2000 went through the course, and then I signed in early 2001. So, yeah, I I went through my cohort of uh, of folks. um, You know, small small group. Uh, But yeah, I, I went through all of it.
2: Okay, so then um all right, so you you can finished it in early two thousand one. Um uh, so let's talk about September eleventh. Uh where were you when uh September eleventh happened? Uh, or where, on September eleventh rather.
3: Yeah, I was actually um at um what was it? Oh man, it was uh, it was one of these um Military leadership courses in, in, in the name, in, in BNOC, I think it was called basic non-commission course. Mm. Uh, so I was I was in that and I, I actually was um, with another good friend of mine that had gone through selection and the, and the operator course with me. And so we were out there together and we, we were on the land app course. Uh, so <laughs> we're, we're, we're in the land nav course, I think, you know, just uh, trying to get it done. And, and until so we can wrap up, uh, that course and get back to the unit and get back out the door. Cause, uh, at that point at September 11, I already had done one full mission, um, a couple of exercises, um, and, you know, obviously a lot of training. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's where I was, uh, I was in the, um, uh, I was in the, the, the land nav course and, uh, the instructors that were out there, um, you know, called us in sort of, you know, in an emergency in a rapid pace. And, and that's when we found out um, what had occurred and, and would what would then change the rest of our lives forever.
2: Yeah. So the uh, after the towers fell, I, I, I don't remember exactly how long after, but the first Americans in Afghanistan was a CIA team uh, followed by a special forces team, I think from fifth group and then eventually a squadron from the unit. And uh, also, uh, I don't know if, I forget exactly how many, but uh, some operators from the British Special Boat Service was there as well. Um, and they kind of took on the the task of taking on the Taliban and um, Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Um, ultimately, uh, they didn't get him there, uh, I believe they would have, uh, but there was some politics at play that uh, didn't allow them to pursue everything they wanted to pursue. And I, I think that played a big part in, in uh, Bin Laden sort of escaping that that initial battle there. Um, so, like, what, what was the feeling, you know, at the unit where were people sort of, uh, you know, excited to, to go deploy? Like, what, what were the feelings there?
3: You know, um, that's a really good question. Um, and so when it first happened, obviously, I wasn't back at at, at our headquarters or our um, individual uh, buildings and subor- sub-organizations where I worked at, right, which is different than some of the people that you mentioned. Um, <clears throat> and so we were wanting to get back uh, because we were disconnected. You know, me and my friend were disconnected where we had been already in the organization for a while uh, so it was kind of rough for me, and, uh, at least personally, um, to understand what was going on. And they kind of cut a lot of communications because they were busy. And so when when we subsequently ended up, when well, we had to graduate the course, we came back, we tried to integrate. Now, my friend who was an Arabic speaker, more that was kind of more his area. at In the beginning, mine was more of the, the Latin American, European sort of sectors, right? Uh, that, that's what I specialized originally for um, he was out the door. Um, so, uh, that, you know, that sub, those sub teams, that was what they had trained for. So they were happy. They were ready to get out the door. They were ready to go integrate with the rest of, of the SMUs and the IC and, and anything that was going out there. Um, so they were excited for, for me, um, we still had, um, other missions going and it, and it sounds weird, but, you know, some of these organizations still, like it sucked, right? Like it was horrible. Um, but at least for me, I knew that there were guys and teams that that was their priority and they would go first. Um, I would then, me as an individual and some other folks from the same teams that I came from would subsequently then get rolled into the greater, uh, sort of GWAT. Um, right. Especially when you're talking about like Afghanistan, right? Like I had there was nothing for me in Afghanistan during that time uh, until I got sucked into it. And then it became my life. Um, but hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. I mean, we, we wanted to get in the fight, but the reality is we had, you know, at that day that that happened, there was still other, you know, work at significant at, at, at the national security level, um, that we were working on. So.
2: Right. I mean, I can imagine how, you know, that, how frustrating that may be. I, I know a guy who was, um, he was a Green Beret uh, for a number of years, and then I think there's, I don't know how exactly how it works, but there was some sort of system where after you do a, a certain number of time in certain jobs, you're kind of forced to go be an instructor somewhere. Yep, yep. And um, so after the towers fell, uh, you know, he's thinking, all right, you know, we're going to deploy us or we're going to do something and then he got pulled to do instructor time and i think it was for like 2 years and and he had like he had no say he tried his hardest to get out of it but he couldn't oh wow yeah wow um okay so then your your first you know uh, combat deployment uh at the SMU was that to afghanistan?
3: E yes it was uh to 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 combat so i went in Let's see if I get my 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 dates right. Um and so the first thing I ended up doing was as a, a part of a team, um, because at that point we didn't, you know, for the greater um you know use of stock, United States Special Operations Command infrastructure and in and then within then the SMUs, if you would, we didn't have have a lot of infrastructures out in the Middle East right like um, liaisons and you know buildings and structure but then later on you know you would hear about the stories of you know JsOC and the rest of the organizations taking buildings and compounds a lot of that didn't exist so my first role um, I think I had then gone and done a second mission um, more within my specialty and then I got pulled in with some some senior got really senior guys um, to become late li- on officers, um, and um, in the Middle East. So I was in like Qatar, Bahrain, a couple of other little uh, countries, and in and out of Afghanistan. Um, so that was my first exposure, which was really cool because I got to to learn really quick at at a senior level. And I think I might have been just still an an E five uh, at, at that point, uh, just a young guy uh, with only two trips underneath my belt. Uh, but I was able to go and, and see how we how we how we integrated into you know bigger special operations into the intelligence community you know and in some of these countries. So um, you know for me that first that first trip, which was probably about four months, was just running around all of these countries, doing a variety you know countries, going into embassies, going into compounds, going into uh, you know helping transport prisoners, just all of that craziness that was going on, you know, um, I was just bouncing back and forth as a, as a battle. No. So that was my first experience with that. And then, um, I did, I did go out to, you know, several outposts and, you know, um, and all the craziness, you know, these are little outposts that they, they were nothing, um, you know, and so helping those guys out for short times and coming back, but what would then become my, my first full rotation. I think that was in maybe months, Months after that, when I came back and then I was sent back out the door, um, I did, I did two trips and I think you had pre kind of set some of the questions for that. So the first one is I, I, I worked, um, as an enabler, um, supporting another, another SMU that was, uh, in Kabul. Right. So that was pretty cool. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, with the seals. And so I got to work with that, those guys for about a, a month and a half at a, at a really, really neat, different, different type of mission. Um, you know, um, supporting kind of a strategic initi- initiative there in Kabul in in 2002. Um, but immediately after that, then my subsequent mis- uh, task was to go up into the mountains, uh, where I went out to Asadabad, uh, and from Asadabad I was supporting another SMU, um, doing you know uh, AFO Advanced Force Operations. Um, and so I, that was that was truly then probably the the more focused combat um and intelligence operations that that i did in support of the gwap
2: so what was your experience like working with the seals was that the first time you had worked with them at that level
3: yeah that was that um no i had worked with them on on exercises uh so from the beginning yes from the beginning so my once i graduated um my operator course within months i went to um a military free fall. And so within the military free fall, I, um, a couple of us tagged on to one of the other SMU's course. And so this was the, now the army guys. So the first exposure for me with other SMU's was the army guys. Right. And so, cause we went through, um, they had just completed, I want to say most of them, their OTC, um, cohort, and then they had gone to MFS. So we tagged in a couple of us tagged into that course. So that was first got you know, first, those guys that I met. And then through the, through the, the, the months, you know, and less than a year, whatever um, we would do our, our exercises and, and, you know, support the greater, the greater JSOC exercises, if you would. Uh, but for the SEALs, um, I had done liaise work for um, sort of a capability that you're on call, uh, just to keep it simple. So I had liaised already with them, um, you know, just team, Team introductions, you know, um, for for months that we would be on call. But yeah, the the first integration, full time working, uh, w- was in Kabul um, with, with those guys, which they were just, you know, absolute uh, uh, amazing professionals. Um, which then, you know, just really quick would, uh, would forever be, you know, people. And again, and this is the early 2002s and many of those guys in that generation, I would say, I, I don't know if we we just weren't very smart. But we ended up. A lot of those guys ended up staying for 15, 20 years. So mm-hmm. we would see each other throughout the course of of, of time um, in various you know countries and operations. Um, we would see each other, and then growing up the ranks. Um, you know, we, essentially, you become you know parallel cohorts.
2: Yeah, I know uh, a guy who was at the the navy special mission unit for i don't know almost 20 years or so or 20 years i forget exactly but i think he had a uh, he had a tour to iraq with the army shmoo. and um yeah so he had he got to experience like being in actual combat and running operations uh with you guys uh, in iraq yep. and and he told yep, me that yep. that was a great experience for him
3: yeah no that's great yeah we've i mean it, and it's funny because there's so much to be said about you know, and hopefully there are there are listeners that are young, you know, um, I don't know military guys um, of the importance of creating those relationships. Right, we will forge some relationships in the shittiest parts of the world um, that would then benefit um, you know our country, if you would, and and even some of them have been uh, five eye partners where we have you know worked with other. Uh, special operations forces from other countries um, and and it's those relationships um, that have that have enabled a lot of successes uh, because we created relationships um, and then later on you will probably see each other at some point someone will be in charge of you know some operation somewhere and, and you will work together um, and then it's important because you know these organizations are, they're all separate little communities, right? And they're their own little world. And and through time, um, you know, there there are differences and priorities and who does what mission, but it's the people that have met that get to fix what appears to be, you know, relationships going awry from, from, from institutions, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. I think like, um, you know, like on the internet or like, in these sort of online military community space, um, there's always like you know, and maybe this is like just young kids who who aren't in the military but want to join when they get old enough or, or that kind of thing. But it's you know it's like who's better you know the SEALs or the or the Army schmoo like, and um and then there's like a lot of these kind of comparison videos and and things like that. But from the the guys that I've actually talked to, who have worked with you know, SEALs who have worked with you guys or, or Army guys who have worked with the SEALs, it's always like a very positive, uh, uh, they have nothing but positive things to say about either unit or, or their experiences there, um, which I think is interesting. And, and then of course, to your point, it's important for the the overall national security of the country. Exactly. Uh, so you also mentioned the, uh, the AFO uh, mission. So is that like primarily doing like reconnaissance type of work?
3: Yeah, that was that was reconnaissance. That you know, that was um, probably the better uh, summarize. It was like a lot of stuff that wasn't, you know, the hard kinetic, direct action mission, right? So that was where, to to your point, right? Like guys talking about like low vis operations or cross border or just stuff that was uh, sort of um, a little bit more unconventional. A lot of uh, liaising and working with the intelligence community, right? With with the the other agencies that were operating and doing their stuff, um, in Afghanistan or, or, or into Pakistan, um, primarily at least in, in, in the beginning. So that AFO work for me was actually really fun because that kind of went back, um, more to a charter, uh, more to, you know, an, an essential design and training, at least for me that I was familiar with. So that was really fun because that was a lot of out of the box thinking. It wasn't just, you know, um, you know and it's funny that you say that or you you mentioned that because um you know later on the the the, the guys and you know freaking amazing and I don't know how they did it that long you know the the that they were just constantly doing direct action like i I've never been in that role i've supported it uh but that's a lot of hard work right like that can uh, I, I've only seen it take tolls on people again back to the point of folks that you met in the beginning, right? The guys that I met and the teams that I met in early 2000. And then by the time I see these guys again in 2005, 2010, they're burnt out. A lot of them mm-hmm. quit. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of them, a lot of them died, um, you know, heroically in, in combat. Um, and then sadly, unfortunately, um, a lot of them that then left, uh, died by suicide because of the, of those tolls in combat. But, you know, airfoil, um, had a little bit more flexibility, a lot of creativity. A lot of creativity came from those AF. I mean, a lot of the capabilities that today are being used uh, by special operations, by conventional units, were developed in, 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 in sort of this time uh, because we were able to, you know, um, do activities that then we realized, crap, I don't have, I don't have this this piece of kit. And so they, they would design it or guys would, would mm-hmm. the creativity would would make it forward, right? They were just, you know, doing MacGyver, there was a lot of MacGyvering going on. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of, you know, a lot of TTPs were, you know, uh, tactics training or whatever it is, TTPs, I'm sorry, uh, were developed during that time because guys were just doing it, right? They had skills, they had foundations, uh, but that's where a lot of it came out of. But yeah, I, I love the AFO work, um, at least in, in that combat scenario. First, it would be a little bit different doing then, you know, sensitive work outside of a of a combat zone. That's completely different because that's a different type of tradecraft.
2: Right. Right. That's kind of more like coke and dagger type stuff. Um, exactly. OK, so then so you do the the AFO stuff uh, in Afghanistan. Did you then have experiences working in Iraq as well?
3: I did. Yeah. I ended up going to Iraq. I remember seeing the, the, I was sitting with, uh, I was actually deployed um, with a small, I don't know, three, four man, not even that. I think it was a yeah, three man team. Um, we were working a strategic level um, intelligence mission um, when, when Iraq started uh, and mm. we were watching it on TV. Right. And so we knew. You know through through communications that uh, some of our teammates were were preparing to go um, in, into Iraq the first wave of Iraq right uh, but we were um, I was somewhere else doing another mission um, to, which ended up being pretty hairy um, coming out of it but yeah um, I, I did end up going going into Iraq I think shortly after I, I came back
2: so at some point you know maybe it was in the I don't know two Two or three years or so after the initial invasion, uh, it. although there were SEAL teams that were in Iraq from the Special Missions Unit and um, uh, Army Special Missions teams in Afghanistan, I think it was primarily the Army was uh, consolidated in Iraq and the Navy was uh, in Afghanistan at, at some point um, did yep. you did you have like a bunch of trips to Iraq after that kind of thing, or were you just working uh, where you were needed?
3: Um, so I was working where I needed. So the I mean you know and obviously you know from the type of channel you have, there's the you know the tactical, operational, strategic. So for me personally, because there's a lot of you know well, at least um, where I come from, uh, the organization I come from is smaller teams, individual right, um, versed um, other smooths that work in, 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 bigger numbers or, or bigger company type elements. Um, uh, <clears throat> so I would go back and forth between the tactical operation and strategic, which by the way, Rex, you know, as we talked about earlier, before we got online is that Rex havoc on you mentally, physically, mm-hmm. um, bouncing around from combat, you know, a combat, That environment, a mindset to then having to go to 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 your point, like a cloak and dagger kind of world. And so I had literally come from a strategic mission um, right prior to going uh, into Iraq. And so I first got into Iraq um, in November of 2006, I want to say. But I had been uh, I was actually an LNO uh, in one of the roles uh, at one of the intelligence community organ agencies, um, working a strategic target, but also working this sort of uh, tactical environment uh, for Iraq, which ended up being a, a high-value target. Um, and then I got handed off to go from where I was working at um, in, into Iraq to replace. Um, actually, who was one of my mentors for one of our our you know top ten. Um, Uh, efforts that we were working within the task force. Uh, So that's when I first ended up uh, getting boots on the ground in in Iraq. But I had been studying and working the problem, leveraging strategic capabilities, if you would, um, for about six months to a year prior to that.
2: So at the time that you had uh, actually gotten into Iraq, um, you said 06, was this the time that Stanley McChrystal was sort of running the the uh, JSOC task force there?
3: Yep, yep. Uh, I remember when uh, when McChrystal um, took over the Enterprise. You know, the, <laughs> the, I call it the Death Star uh, <laughs> when when he when he came in. Um, yeah, it was fascinating. You know, it, there's two two sides to the story, but um, definitely just the, the the level of work that we did and the synergy behind the crystal and that brain power um, was just absolutely amazing, which would I, I would submit shaped and you know configured how we then operate hopefully into the future with some of the concepts that, that he developed and put in place.
2: Before we continue, I wanna give a thank you to our sponsor for this podcast, and that's 10,000. They are a men's training brand. Uh, they make phenomenal gear. Uh, to test out their gear, I went to the gym with a shirt and a pair of shorts from 10,000. I went on my toughest day, which is legs. Uh, I hit it for about 45 minutes of weightlifting and then 20 minutes or so on the Stairmaster. And I sweat a lot uh, on this leg day. And normally I'm wearing a regular shirt and I'm drenched. And uh, once I'm done with my workout, I have to change shirts before I leave the gym. But uh, this shirt from 10,000, it handles the sweat. Really well. I'm not sure what they do to it. Uh, you know, maybe they sprinkle a little magic on it, but it's really phenomenal. Uh, I recommend it for anyone who's active. And uh, 10,000 works with top strength and endurance athletes to co design, test, and develop their gear so you know it's heavily vetted before it shows up at your door. Kit up now and get 15% off your purchase. Go to cc and enter code Global Recon. That's T E N T. H-O-U-S-A-N-D dot C-C and enter the code Global Recon to get 15% off. They offer free shipping, free returns, and a lifetime guarantee. Now get off your ass and get the highest quality, best fitting, most comfortable training shorts you've ever worn from 10,000. Yeah, um, you know, there's a ton of stories out there sort of detailing uh, that period of time, um, you know, books or podcasts or whatever um and it, it seemed like a uh especially in that that time like 06 to oh seven oh eight. um yep highly kinetic um a lot of bad guys were taken off the battlefield uh a, a bunch of operators were killed or, or very badly wounded um and then also during that period of time uh there was a a bunch of sort of hostage situations that would arise where um you know some sort of westerners uh, whether they be doctors or aid workers or or something uh were being kidnapped uh and either held for ransom or you know sort of executed on uh on video uh as as a sort of propaganda tool uh for al qaeda um So can you talk about uh, your experience working hostage rescue missions?
3: Yeah. Um, Yeah, that, you know, that it's so to kind of capture something that you said to that, that period was, well, I would almost submit that right after maybe 2002 to, I don't know, maybe 10, 11. It was a nonstop bullet train. Right, like just non-stop. I don't, you know. There's probably a lot of listeners that were involved in it. Uh, you know, it wasn't just chasing, um, you know, terrorists around the world. Like everybody would think, hey, we're gonna just go kill terrorists all the time. No, there was there was so many other things that um, on the battlefield that were going on at the same time. You know, from um, you know your standard you know, <laughs> your standard terrorist. Uh, to uh, state-sponsored terrorism, to you know, uh, and national intelligence efforts that were going on, to um, unfortunately, to hostages. Um, and hostages are, are it's nasty work. Um, so hostage rescue, and then the preparation, if you will, old intelligence term, you know, intelligence preparation of the battlefield type work to to find, you know, before the teams go and attempt the rescue everything that goes before that um, and and many of these rescues sometimes um, you know and I think that it's open they weren't successful for many mm-hmm. reasons a lot of, a lot of them weren't the fault um, uh, of the op, of the teams or the operators if you would it's a, a variety of, of things that can, that can go wrong or, or that can hinder the, the rescue attempt which is extremely emotionally draining when you're you know you come home from wherever you're working and you're just thinking about this Poor, you know, essentially American, whomever they are, they got snatched somewhere for trying to do at least do good somewhere, and and you're worried about that. You're constantly thinking, how do you find this person? What this person is going through because it's different than going, man, I really hate this, you know, this, you know, HVT number five, and I really want to help get this person off the map. Versus you know the name, the family, you know what emotionally is connected to a hostage, and so the kind of something you said, There were hostage, um, of rescue attempts almost globally. It wasn't just those that were associated with, with, uh, with Jiwa. Mm-hmm. There, there was a couple of other that were sprinkled, um, in other areas of operations that the, you know, the, the the greater community had been working on. And so I had been fortunate to work a couple of them from a variety of, of um, tactical all the way to strategic capability, but it was really draining. Um, you know, was able to come back from a, a combat mission, come back home stateside, you know, reintegrate as part of my daily job into, you know, the in, intelligence community and then work or, or within even the the, the the JSOC enterprise and rework that problem and then fly out to X country, you know, um, in the attempts to work with whatever nation to 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 um, enable finding these hostages, and then it fails, right? or or you're not able to do it because of whatever you know the jungles or or the mountain ranges or they're being transported or or whatever information. Um, and I'll tell you that you know watching and then from a variety of of intelligence, so it's you know leveraging signals intelligence, human intelligence, um a variety of those, you know the hard one is 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 watching the videos um, listen, you know, or, um, uh, I seen the transcripts of, of the conversations about someone that you hope that you're, you know, you're wishing doesn't lose hope and that they know that their country hasn't given up on them. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's the the hostage rescue, at least for me working the backside and as many of other, you know, professionals that have done it, um, it, it, it's, you know, it's one that will give you nightmares.
2: Yeah, and I think even sort of uh, what sort of gave birth to the the Army SMU was uh, in the 70s, there was a ton of uh, hostage situations that occurred. Uh, a lot of it was on airlines, and um, the U.S. didn't really have a capability to address that, Um And then the founder of the unit had spent time with the British SAS. And then when he came back, he he worked for several years to stand up the unit and, and sort of build that capability to rescue hostages. Um, And, and then, you know, I I like that you mentioned that there were uh, hostage rescue scenarios that were happening outside of the war zones as well. Um, There were several in Africa in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years or so. Um, And, uh, so, like, when you when we're talking about, like, let's say uh, something goes wrong and and uh, the hostages don't get freed or, or maybe they get killed in the attempt, is it like simply like you know the person is in this house, the t- assault team gets there, and the uh, hostage takers just kill them before the assaulters can get in, kind of thing?
3: Um, you know that that. That's a little bit of a different situation. I think more so is is timing, it is fidelity in the certainty um, that there's a hostage somewhere, right? Because there's risk, right? So you you know some commander, someone, some politician has to um, give the go, assume the risk, and, and then you know the, the the men and women that go then attempt to to rescue them. Um, they're going to give it their all, right? Um, They're going to, I don't want to say trust, they're going to trust that once the green light goes, they're going to go and and attempt to to get those hostages. But there's, you know, and so the one risk to hostage uh, rescue is that then the hostage takers get an indication that there's a rescue attempt, right? Mm. And then the worst case scenario, depending what, you know, and I'm not an expert in hostage rescue, But within the intelligence side of the house, it is that it's it's some indicator that they're aware of that could trigger that they get killed. Right. That's the worst case scenario is Mm -hmm. we something gets screwed up. Either, you know, we send a source or they see a bug or they hear a UAV or, you know, or they they think they see a shadow. And then now it triggers an event. Right. And and sometimes just getting to a block, a city, you know, just. It's very difficult, as we even saw with you know with the Bin Laden, how long that took. Um, and so there's a lot of um, things that got to be measured. And so you know the 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 killing them on on the objective type thing, not familiar. It the the hard part was the chess game. You do something or time. It's all about time, right? They're gonna they're gonna move. We couldn't get intelligence fast enough. We couldn't confirm. We couldn't get the forces ready. And 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 unfortunately, there's a lot of frustration behind that. Um, especially in terrain that is very difficult to get to, right? The the let's just say the hostage taker, the enemy, knows that terrain much better than we do. There are many of these that I've worked that we had to build technology. And I'll tell you what, I, I never wanted to later on in time, I like I'm like, Man, I hope I don't get taken hostage or get compromised somewhere where I think that we don't have the capability to find me right because hmm. it takes time to sometimes and i have seen the development and the improvement of capability now the fortunate thing in special at least in special operations and in certain intelligence agencies they're going to give it everything that they can you know guys are going to be macgyvers and creativity to build the capabilities or the way to do it to find that to find those and, and, and um, enable the rescue of those people but yeah it it's you're playing against time and you know murphy's law the 101 things that can go wrong and it's especially some of the ones that, um, you know, the rescues of the guys um, down in South America, that took a long time. And it wasn't because, you know, the U.S. didn't want to get them. There's just so much involved. There's also politics. There's also that country. There's, you know, there's a a variety of things. So hopefully that answers.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, Okay, so can you talk about like What SIGINT and human is, and uh, the importance that that plays in getting an assault force on the right target, or getting a team to say like snatch a a wanted terrorist, uh, you know, off the streets in country X.
3: Yeah, so very simpler. You know, human is human intelligence is derived from human sources, right? We essentially um, find ways to get uh, um, humans uh, close to a target, close to an objective to. to give us the information or, or that we can use them in a way um, to the betterment of, of our operations. And then sig- signals intelligence is, you know, potentially produced by the intersection and exploitations of signals. Today, that's, you know, a variety of things. Before it used to be simple, you know, uh, cellular phones, um, radios, now it is all the way down to computers, internet of things, cars, whatever. Um, so it is leveraging those ints um, in in support of these operations, right? Um, and sometimes they they'll they'll complement e- each other. In particular, Sigit and HUMIT. you know, there's a lot of times where um, uh, a source or a HUMIT can be used to to enable Sigit, um, and SIGINT can then be used because you you're your your you're gaining um, access to essentially trusted uh, communications um that thing can be used for human right like that's um and then human is obviously one of the oldest forms of, of intelligence um, but what was the, the second part to that i'm sorry
2: so then uh, you know what is the sort of role that that plays in, or importance rather in like getting an assault force on a target or like you know maybe not in a combat zone but like getting a team to you know, maybe like snatch a guy off the streets who they've been looking for, or something like that.
3: Okay, so the the, the number one thing is, you know, uh, what is it? Time, place, and predictability, right? Like that we know because you can't just, you know, uh, you know, and just simple hide an assault force if you would on a bus, right? Like mm-hmm. you got to put them somewhere. They could, they you know, you have to stage any any element where their presence isn't detected. Have enough information, however, or intelligence, right? Because that's then processed data um, with the level of certainty um, that a target is going to be somewhere at a certain time. Um, and and then some of these that you're also going to be able to get indications and warning that if, for example, on a soft force or whatever element is going to uh, attempt an activity that you're monitoring that real time. You know, And there's been a lot of cases where uh, both of these ints have, you know, almost at the last minute have recalled back an element that was about to get into danger because Mm. it is not only, you know, weeks and months prior to developing a target, it is within seconds and after. So there are many, you know, the intelligence doesn't, that process, that intelligence process doesn't stop when, you know, as you kind of mentioned earlier, you know, the, the young people that are looking, you know, call of duty and, and, and on some of these social medias talking about these elements and they, you know, they took down a bad guy. It is afterwards because there is sometimes a lot of stuff that happens afterwards um, that is key. And in particular, something you mentioned, that was where the, you know, and this is on several books where the task force was very successful, was the ability to do once they hit one target, you know, they could then from that target conduct tactical, you know, amplifying uh, intelligence analysis and hit another target and then mm-hmm. another target, you know, and it isn't just out of a win, right? There's, there's all of these procedures and there's SOPs involved, but that's the, that's where those intelligence uh, played in. And, and it can be just as simple as, you know, someone on, on the, you know, in the soft force of that element that does a tactical interrogation. And, you know, that, that individual goes, well, actually, you know, there are two houses down. Um, and, and that can that can then reinforce uh, a subsequent operation. So it, I would submit that intelligence uh, is critical. Two things: success. I would say, you know, then later in, in, in my career, where it ended up becoming more important, is to make sure we bring back, um, you know, those women, those men and women back safely. That put themselves in harm is if we can leverage the intelligence to make sure that they're they're just not going to walk into a landmine, which unfortunately. As we've seen with Iraq and Afghanistan, you know the the, the framework of warfare changed with all of these IDs and suicide vests and all of this other crap um, that was unfortunately, you know, uh, killing our, our our forces.
2: Yeah, I um I'd done a, a, a few podcasts with a guy who was a uh, <clears throat> he was at the Army Schmoo in uh, the majority of his time there, he was like an assaulter. Uh, I think he became a sniper at some point. Um, and then we were just speaking about, uh, Iraq in particular. And, um, uh, he was talking about times where they were on targets where, you know, three or four suicide bombers were running at them from the house. And, uh, and, you know, they're yeah. having to shoot these guys before they're able to clack off. And some of them, the bomb the, you know, they do go off and, um, and this is kind of, you know, deeper details, but, uh, and maybe it's not something that you would think about as a sort of casual observer of, of, uh, you know, reading the news or, or learning about this stuff. But like, uh, you know, these guys are exploding and, um, you know, their body parts are going everywhere and like guys are getting hit with like teeth or getting stuck in their arms and, and all kind of sort of nasty, nasty things that go with that, um, Okay, so uh, JSOC itself uh, was born out of the failure of Operation Eagle Claw, um, which was an effort to free uh, American hostages at an American embassy in Iran. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a whole big discussion in itself. You know, there was a revolution, um, and then the Ayatollahs took over, uh, and they were very anti-American and uh, as a result, the folks at the embassy ended up uh, being held hostages, I think, for like over 300 days. Um, so this was probably just after the unit was stood up um, and they had to the, set up this whole operation to, to go into Iran and, and rescue these hostages. Um, there was a crash, an aircraft crashed in the desert uh, killed a few operators and, and pilots, and it was a huge failure. Um, but one of the issues that were identified from the failure was the uh, the interoperability of the different services and agencies uh, wasn't so great. Uh, so then out of that failure is when sort of JSOC was born. Um, and uh, so you've worked several liaison roles, uh, with different sort of intel uh, agencies and, and task forces. Um, and so just a question for you is, uh, you know, obviously a, a ton of what you, you, you've done is secret, but essentially were you just being there to be able to, to integrate uh, the the intel side and the assault side sort of?
3: Um. Yeah so a lot of the integration into sort of the um you know, and I'm, and I'm and I'm happy to hear how you kind of presented it with, with JSOC, right and and what McChrystal did and so um you know and I, and I know he wrote about it in, in his book but you know the teams of teams and and the constructs that he did and so it was always amazing um to to join a mission or go into you know an, an operation if you would where there was a JSOC, a JSOC or, or task force, you know, JOC, for, for lack of better words, you know, Joint Operations Center. And, and within there, that's where that synergy came in, right? So, um, you know, wh- whatever organization was prime for that area, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, whatever, um, um, Africa, um, those guys were in charge, but it was the interconnection with the the whole enterprise, if you would. And then with the 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 supporting elements, right? Air assets, artillery, cyber, intel, whatever. And so you see that all in, in one jock, which is absolutely amazing um, to see that come together because you're, you're living in some of these compounds, if you would, for, for months. And you're essentially you know um, in, in these jocks. Now, for me, I was fortunate to be able to go into these jocks um, because of the level of taskings that we get. So we integrated in them most of the time, um, and then later on in time, um, depending the role, I was able to have a more of a full time uh, staff role in them, and or come in get my tasking or taskings that we had to get, and then and then roll out. But you get to see that that interoperability, right? Like um, you you see the, you know, like you see maybe on, you hear about you read in the books or you see on TV like all the monitors and all the screens and. All the slew of people working, what essentially, well, wasn't necessarily twenty four. They are on twenty four hours, but everybody's normally working at night, um, which was sort of that that rit- that rhythm that JSOC basically had is that that operating at night. Um, but for me, so yeah, so I got the ability to work in in the early early onsets of some of these huts that were made by by plywood uh you know the CBs would create these amazing things they would bring uh, these amazing these structures uh, or we would take over they would take over a building and then we would just make like a little headquarters in there um all the way to then embedding as an an lno in various co- capacities in in some of the commands right so either i did uh, at one point the jsoc lno to SOCSENT. so that was um really good uh, for me personally. Career-wise, to be able to take on that role and work there, um, but a lot of the lays on you know back to what we mentioned earlier is the the people in the relationship that you create early on. A lot of the successes, I would say, and submit that some of these um, you know um, structures are successful on is the people that then know how to work with each other. Uh, hopefully, that that kind of answers that um, in and how it supports sort of developing the intelligence picture. And then yes. Ultimately, you know, leading in a soft force, but um, I would also say that a lot of it success wasn't only uh, leading in a soft force uh, onto a target. There are other, there are plenty of other uh, um, instances of success, versus an a soft force physically there, and or you know, a kinetic strike uh, from somewhere, right, magically, um, to other events that trigger and go sort of upstream uh, uh, to go from maybe a tactical to a strategic level and um, state.
2: So the the LNO, is that uh, a liaison, essentially?
3: Yeah, it's like a liaison officer. You can be a liaison officer from, from a, a specific unit within whatever, right? So the soft community or the IC community mm. um, that gets put into a job. Somewhere an embassy, um, somewhere, you know, tactical or as an individual that's on a rotation, um, that then you will be embedded or working in and out of these, these jocks that, that we we're talking
2: about. Okay. So, you know, for anyone that's paid attention to, uh, you know, the last 20 plus years of Americans and, and Western countries fighting in the Middle East or, or elsewhere, uh, you know, one of the things that you uh, you see, here, read about is, you know, sort of that interoperability piece, uh, you know, the Army working with the Navy, the Marine Corps working with the Army or the IC integrating in, and in, you know, in whatever capacity, hunting down terrorists or just doing sort of intel work. And um, you kind of assume that <clears throat> that capability is what you know, the major world powers have, you know, specifically China, Russia, et cetera. Um, You know, you obviously know there's a war war going on in Ukraine. Um, Most people, if not almost all, thought that the war would end rather quickly. Uh, It's been going on for about a year now. And um, I, I think, you know, People sort of put Russia as a number two military in the world behind the United States in terms of size and, and budget and, and things like that. Uh, but I think some of the failures that Russia had on the battlefield uh, early on or in, in recent months where they lost a, a ton of territory in like sort of a, a quick, uh, you know, quick run is there... Uh, their failures to work for different units to work together for the um, you know, all the things that aren't like so sexy, right? Like, you know, the the ability to organize and, and uh, implement strategy. I, I think especially for me, like someone just kind of on the outside looking in and, and doing all these podcasts and talking to different guys. I just assumed that the Russians were the second best in the world at that. And then, you kind of see some of the mistakes or failures on the battlefield in Ukraine. And it's like, whoa, like, man, like America is really good at this stuff. If Russia is struggling with with some of these things that would would, uh, maybe not be easy for an American force, but it's something that uh, is done well on the American side.
3: Yeah. And I would say that. Sorry, I would just say yeah that that's a that's a great point because you know I hadn't been involved because already I mean I think I've been I'd been out about two years and you know within the four years before I retired in October 2020 a lot of it was focusing on um, you know, capability development uh, science and technology mm. to support uh, future operations and in particular you know um, the machine the industry machine of Creating capabilities for um, for the global war on terrorism, you know, wasn't isn't probably necessarily what we're going to need for great power competition. There's a there's a big there's a big change, right? And in particular, um, you know, leveraging now, you know, cyber operations um, and and some of these other things that are, are coming into this multi-domain, you know, uh, world. Uh, but I think to your to your point, you know, that, that what's going on. In Ukraine and and what has been thrown there from at least the U.S. side um, capabilities and and then things that have been learned. I mean that's a that's a learning. There's a lot of learning lessons there, but it's also um, you know you got to also probably you know, step back one and go okay this is this is Ukraine. Yeah, that the, the players are somewhat, um, but how will this roll out five years from now or ten years from now? Um, because we need to prepare. At least our people, you know, and this is something as I mentioned to you that's you know, important to me as you a know, former sergeant major is is looking at, at the force, at the people that are going to do this, uh, and you know, and, and and those that work within special operations and intelligence world, and shaking free, right, this this mindset, this muscle memory of global war on terrorism versus what's going on in Ukraine. Like I don't, I don't know yet. Uh, there's some stuff that I am involved with studying it. Um, and staying abreast of capabilities, but what are, you know, what today are Green Berets or SEALs or our conventional forces, how are they looking at Ukraine? Um, And then whatever, you know, the big sign that says, hey, be prepared to operate in these environments. And in particular, if it's different than the GWAP, right? Because that's a a different mindset. Those are different tools. Those are different ways of sharing intelligence, right? Versus, I don't know, maybe the mindset of, of some of these young folks or folks that have been in the GWAC going, well, let's take a hammer to it. Well, wait, that may not be what, what the, the, the future solution is. It's not kinetic strike. It may be something else. Mm-hmm. And and how do we prepare our forces and then our industry? And to something you mentioned, you know, the, the joint aspect of the inner services um, and the intelligence community and even our political, right? Anything else that we have to connect to, you know, this coin concept. Um, how do we integrate that into what may be, what is definitely going to be the next warfare? And probably what we have to be aware of is what's brewing, you know, that we're not aware of. Again, September 11 kind of popped its head up. You know, there were, you know, there's a lot of studies that indicate it may have been coming, but it came with the big two by four to the head. So, what's going to be the next potential two by four to the head at the homeland or that directly affects the United States?
2: so you spent 20 years um at the smu uh and then i think you said earlier that you had like 14 years of actually deploying and stuff like that and then about six where you worked in in more of a uh sort of a command role or can you talk about some of that
3: yeah no absolutely so so right around i think it was 11 or 12 uh, probably a little bit earlier that, within, you know, the tenure. And then, again, we're you know, we're still in the military. Uh, you're still in the Army. Um, even though you're in special operations, you still have to have career progression, right, because mm. the Army, and that means the Army is going to evaluate, you know, even though you come from a SMU or special operations, you know, you, you get evaluated uh, by the Army for progression. So, you know, you got to move from, you know, I got um, into the unit as an E5, I want to say, um, and left as an E9. Uh, But it took a lot of work. Uh, It wasn't given, you know, there being in combat, some of the training that I had to do and uh, the skills that I developed and and, uh, even going to school helped my progression uh, up the ranks, which is what you want to do, uh, because everybody that comes to these organizations, for the most part, at least for me, I wanted to be, you know, in charge or emulate. know the s3 sergeant major and take that role right you have to have goals Mm -hmm. Uh, and to get to those goals you got to properly develop and it's though it's not just come from deployment or being on the road all the time that then you're going to be in charge because that you're not well i think you're not well-rounded until some aspects is some guys will go into recruiting some folks will go into um, the process to help with you know uh, selection or with the operator course or with advanced skills um, or capability development. Those are the three, at least for the enlisted guys, is where, where, where guys will go, get that experience, continue to bring new blood, new capabilities um, into the unit, or um, get time and spend some time, um, as, again, as an LNO or working with the inner agencies and then come back, right? As in, in career. That's your career progression. So for me, I really, really enjoyed the training piece of it and then bringing... Um, A lot of the lessons learned um, from the tactical, operational, and strategic um, missions that we were involved in, and then bringing them to the schoolhouse. That's the only way you're going to get the next generation that comes in to understand. In particular, during the the global war on terrorism, uh, as I mentioned, I was in my organization before the global war on terrorism. So uh, the organization had some experience based on what it had done. And then we all quickly exploded in, into the GWAT. So by the time you get into, I don't know, the two thousand sixes and sevens, by the time we're getting new blood coming in, they already had some some combat time. Um, but we then had to teach them about our world, right? Which is, mm-hmm. uh, it, you gotta kind of almost undo what they know, leverage the good, but kind of teaching teaching them sort of our DNA right? how we do things. So I liked the schoolhouse. I spent uh, about three years in the schoolhouse teaching um, advanced skills or, you know, being a a regular instructor to being a course director, which was very, very fulfilling um, because I got to see our young, our young enlisted come in and then progress through the ranks as well as our officers. We helped uh, mentor and shape, you know, our, our future commanders. So that was, that was an honor to do that. Um, and then I rolled into like a small period. This is probably like again the 2012s. I was going to do some more uh, unique operational stuff. Did that for about three years, and then the, the last part, as you know, you're counting down your your shelf life, right? Um, I went into capability development, which I think maybe some of the guys you volunteer or a lot of the former SMU sergeant majors have also gone to that role, which is capability development or you know um, combat development. So we're we're helping. Ensure that the the future of the units have the capabilities that they need. And it, you know, developing a new capability doesn't start today and you'll get it tomorrow. It's three four years ahead of time um, to work those capabilities. So that's why I said that operationally, you know, nonstop uh, back and forth was was about 14 years, and the rest of it was still critical. Um, but then you have to then now serve as a leader in a capacity in these units, and then you know, train and mentor. The next generation uh, to move forward.
2: So, in that that sort of development process, um, are you guys also sort of looking to the future and saying, you know, we may face this threat, and 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 how can we mitigate that? Is that part of it?
3: Uh, all the time, absolutely. It, it is. Um, you know, we're always uh, in, involved. Um, you know, and then you start talking to your not, not you know, your futures. So there's elements within these commands that are their task for the commanders is into the future. They're not the, the the threes, right? The operations, which is the now, some of these elements are charged into the future. And so that's future plans, future training, um, you know, scenarios that we were going to train against um, that aren't what we're dealing today, but what we're, we're, we're potentially going to do into the future. And then also with capabilities going, Hey, um, you know The communications or the body armor or the weapons or the mobility um, or the uh, you know, kinetic tools or intelligence tools that we're using today uh, to support GWAT in this sort of um, permissive environment isn't going to meet muster for what we may need at more of an operational strategic to go against great power competition, right? It makes sense. Right, it's like you're, yeah. um, And I do that sometimes in my posts, and some other guys will do it. Right, like the cry uniforms, you know, or the cool guy gear that you wear, running around Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and some of that is maybe not what you're going to be wearing going through, you know, through Africa, or it may not be what, definitely not going to be what you're going to be doing, you know, AFO work or intelligence preparation of the battlefield or whatever else, special reconnaissance, sensitive activities into other domains that takes equipment. That takes um, training and, and a mindset, right? Getting out of you know uh, doing this, I don't know, you know, for lack of better words, this this um, more tactical combat, direct action, if you would, kinetic role um, that we've been doing, and then turning that around and, and trying to do something more cloak and dab, more sensitive activities, if you would, takes a little bit of reshifting uh, at the human level, at the command level but also capabilities and sometimes even just, you know, the will of an organization to be held in that kind of work.
2: So are you able to talk about um, any of the missions or tasks that you've completed that had sort of uh, national significance?
3: Um, yeah, very briefly, uh, or very kind of light. Um, you know, I, I, I personally, I've been fortunate um, as many of my, you know, the guys, the guys and girls that I've worked with, and they've just, uh, you know, I feel sometimes very humbled um, to have worked with some of these giants and some these professionals. I, I became the person that I am and, and was successful uh, because of the, the men and the women to the, to the right of me and, and my leaders. Um, you know, and so I thank them for that. And so I've just been fortunate that my mentors and, and those that have sort of pointed me towards the direction and, and some things that I was given the flexibility to be involved in to to say yes um, and a lot of that is because of just, um, you know, you mentioned it from the beginning, that the level of the organizations that we come up uh, from are by design, chartered, funded, created because of that need. And so we are, for the most part, always involved um, in activities of, of national significance. Um, and so I've been able to, from, um, you know, uh, operational side or from, from a tactical side um, helping you know uh, find those top ten HVTs and and ensure in a variety of, of, of manners um, that they got um, they got what they deserve for to keep it to keep it simple uh, to some of what may you know in, in certain parts not be very sexy, uh, which is provide the intelligence and the illumination. Um, that led to then understanding at, at, at pretty high political levels of what was really going on because we were involved uh, in that aspect. And that is leveraging, um, you know, for me, is leveraging not only special operations and, and, and what in and details in that, you know, uh, sensitive activity, special reconnaissance, uh, in particular, to then the intelligence uh, uh, apparatuses from. SIGINT to human, um, I've even been involved in, in cyber, you know, computer network operations from, from early on, uh, onset of leveraging, um, those capabilities, right. To, to, uh, uh, enabling the intelligence, uh, to inform, uh, decision makers. And that's huge, right. It sounds simple. It doesn't sound sexy, but when, when, you know, as an individual, a team, an organization, you are able to provide that level that a then a decision maker it makes a decision based on your intelligence and your recommendation. That's key um, to then hostage rescues, right? Those those are the, those are long drawn out ones that um, we've seen. You know, we've we've uh, been able to I've been able to help um, bring those guys back um, and you know and continue a normal life. Um, and that's, that's amazing. You know, the, the people wiped off the face of their, yeah, it became part of the job, but there, I think for me personally, it's some of the other things that we enabled um, were huge. So sorry about, you know, about tap dancing <laughs> around all of it. Um, no, that it. Kind of, okay. Yeah. Hopefully that answers
2: it. Yeah. No, no, I, I appreciate it. Um, to be honest, I, I, I would have, exp- uh, you know, maybe expect you to say, no, I can't talk about it at all, but you know, I appreciate you being able to give some kind of answer without like, you know, giving up details and stuff like that. Um,
3: yeah. I okay. Appreciate
2: that. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk about some of the, the mental health aspects of working uh, in combat or at sort of high levels, uh, special operations, or, you know, even the infantry uh, and some of the burnout, um, and and some of the things that you're doing now to sort of address this and, and, and support your peers.
3: No, I appreciate that. I, I, I want to say that first is, um, many others. So, you know, I, would like to give a sh- uh, whatever. Shout out to, you know, guys like, um, um Brad Taylor, Tom Satterley, DJ Sipley, hmm. any, you know, guys that come from the, and there's, there's a couple of other ones. Those guys have essentially taken and gone onto these platforms to share their stories as humans, men, and what that toll, what this toll has been, from losing people um, to losing their families to literally sitting at the edge of a bed with a forty-five in hand, almost convinced that um, that they were broken. Right? Um, it takes, I think, today I evaluate that. As much more strength and just you, know, you got to love these people for doing that. Then almost the the, the, the heroic thing that they did, right? Uh, I think this is really where, where where these people are making making uh, their impact. Um, and so for me, following, I had to I had to find an example, right? Because I came out, uh, you kind of mentioned from an organization that we you don't see a lot of us talking, but I I personally didn't want to lose any more any more unit members, any more veterans. I didn't want to see more family struggle. That's then what I realized that I was having issues. And so the one with stigma, you know, I said, fuck the stigma, screw the disorder and post-traumatic stress. It's just post-traumatic stress, right? And it's, uh, and and I see it as an injury and I want people to understand that you're not going because you are, you're, you're depressed, you're angry, Um, you're, you're not valuing your life because of everything that you you sacrificed a lot to serve this, this nation. And I mean, it can be anybody, you know, someone who worked on a ship, somebody that, you know, that arranged that was an administrator or or was an operator. It doesn't matter. We all face a toll because we're all human beings at the end of it. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, the military doesn't know how to fix us or doesn't know how to properly, um, Put us through these worlds, through this combat, make us better and then reintegrate us into society as we take care of an airframe. You never hear about airplanes really overly malfunctioning in the military, right? Because they cost a lot of money and someone could get fired, but we don't take that same approach to people. So my goal is to share these stories as just one more voice, one more, you know, Cuban American that came from Cuba. Worked his way through the streets, went into the military, had a goal and a passion. I pursued it. I was fortunate, um, but then I got spit out, me and my family. And then I can look in the mirror and go, you know what? I'm I'm i fortunate that some higher being or somehow I, I didn't lose hope, and I didn't I didn't uh, I didn't lose um, the battle to suicide. But because of that, and because of what, you know, of, of the work that I did at the levels that I did, I can take that and now pursue, um, which I think it's at the national security level. It's a, it's, a, it's an important level. If we can't take care of our military, their mental health, then I think we're gonna be, it's gonna be really hard for us into the future, in particular when great power competitions is all focused on information warfare, cognitive warfare, right? Like th- this isn't made up, this isn't a movie. Cognitive warfare is real. There are other nations trying to, is actually essentially exhaust us mentally. I can imagine for our warfighters that are already mentally uh, and we're open about it as a nation right because we have to be. And so my goal is again share that a remove the stigma, talk about it, seek help. You're human, you're a human being. You're not, you know, you're not any less of an operator, less of a marine, sailor, airman, space force, whatever because um, of mental health it's it's okay that's being human. So that's my first thing is remove that stigma. Show that hey, I'm vulnerable, just like anybody else, and all of these other great warriors or individuals, excuse me, that have gone out publicly because they have chosen and deconflicted with their families that they're they're gonna be a voice and continue to lead. Um, so I thank them for that. So yeah, removing the stigma, you know, and then probably uh, addressing, you know, and the again the worst thing I, I, and to something you had mentioned, like I personally in an organizations that I've been with people that we've worked with, we have solved. Some of the hardest, most complex problems and taking off this earth some of them you know the the most radical people that we needed to take off, but the one thing we we are really suffering with is taking back a brother or sister that is losing hope and 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 dies by suicide so it for me it is is attacking as best as pro uh, as possible you know and curtailing and suicide and then probably shifting the narrative a little bit um, to you know hey mental health and maybe traumatic brain injury you know the the uh, to your, um, you know the global war on terrorism has produced a lot of concussions a mm-hmm. lot of traumatic brain injuries because the weapon of the enemy in Iraq Afghanistan and in some of these other shitty places in order to to you know to do unconventional warfare against the US and, and our allies was ied's vests bombs booby traps and just some nasty nasty shit right where we really didn't even fight regular guns on guns, you know, men, mano a mano, we didn't really do that. It was mostly a lot of this, we lost a lot of people because of that. And so that eco traumatic brain injury, I, I submit from what I've studied and the people that I work with that it is those traumatic brain injuries that are causing a lot of that cognitive fog, that feeling that I am a failure that, you know, post military or, or or transition at some point in, in their military career, they're just losing that edge. They're not, you know, they're not viable. And so they want to and, and so they think they lose hope that they got to take their lives. And so um, to wrap that kind of up, you know, thank you for the ability to, to share my story. But illuminating that even for me during that, that those 20 years and, and, I, and I came into the SMU um, already with a gunshot wound right from a, a light. It's not even combat. It was more of, you know, a, a skirmish or whatever, if you would. But, you know, I came into the organization with a level of post-traumatic stress from that. Didn't realize that because then I got into this, you know, speed train, this bullet train um, within the JSOC community in the beginning of the GWAT, but it took its toll on me. And so one thing that I do is introspect. I go back through all of the, basically, the the operations that you and I just talked about, the cognitive, you know, complexities of some of this work and where I was struggling and being able to share that um, in retrospect. You know, and and so to, to wrap it up, I would submit that if we don't, if, if people don't realize, you know, the, the the hopefully your listeners that are aspiring military, young military guys or guys that are uh, in the service now, and maybe struggling a little bit, you know, kind of like that funk, that it, it's okay to realize that maybe they're struggling uh, from some of this cognitive and 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 to seek help, um, so they continue to serve, or once they get into the military, that they're optimized and prepared to deal with the complexity of unfortunately this ever changing warfare.
2: Yeah. You mentioned a couple of names, um, uh, DJ simply in particular, uh, Tom Satterley, I interviewed him before. Uh, there was, uh, another unit guy, his name is Tom Spooner. I don't know if you know him. Um, yep, yep, yep. he does phenomenal work with uh, warrior's heart, uh, down in Texas, I believe. And, yep. and he does all this great work, uh, to try and help guys who are, uh, experiencing issues or that's a, a physical sort of TBI and, or, uh, you know, PTS, uh, you know, uh, things like that. But, um, so Tom Spooner, he had seen a ton of combat as an assaulter and a sniper. Um, I think mostly in Iraq. And, uh, before I started this podcast, uh, I was watching an interview with him and, um, He mentioned in the interview that, you know, he had gone through a... I don't know exactly what the time period was, but he had a a period where he was struggling mentally. And he mentioned that it was easier for him to be, you know, in the middle of Iraq in a a nasty gunfight or something than it was to be at home with his family on the couch, like watching TV or something. And when he he said that, like, it completely, like, blew my mind. and, And it really... Made me curious to to learn more about that, and um, that that's that was sort of one of the catalysts for me to start this podcast. And I, I don't know if I told him that or not, but um, and then you also mentioned uh, DJ Shipley. Uh, you know, I don't know him very well, but you know, we've chatted a couple of times, and um, and I, I kind of keep up with what he's got going on. Uh, you know, GBRS Group and and all that, but he did a podcast with uh, Sean Ryan. Uh, who is a, a former CEO and a, uh, a CIA contractor, and he has a phenomenal podcast called the Sean Ryan Show. And uh, like I was aware of Shipley's sort of service, like I've I've seen um, sort of his bio, like professional sort of a resume, let's say. Yep. Uh, but he was he was so open on that podcast, like it was it was almost shocking, like how honest and open he was, and. Uh, it was, it was long. I forget how long it was. It might have been like three and a half hours or something, but it was, you know, three and a half hours. And my mind was just blown at, at how uh, honest he was and how open he was about his struggles and, and how sort of close he came to uh, ending his own life. And, and I, I think that, um, for people in the military or who served, um, to see a guy like that, you know, SEAL Team 6, ton of combat, tough guy, respected guy. To see a guy like that be so open about his struggles, I think that helps other people. Um, even if, you know, they don't speak to him directly, just listening to that can sort of make people feel like, you know what, okay, like this is this is normal. You know, I'm not alone in, in feeling like this. Yep. Um, so th- that was a really phenomenal podcast podcast. Uh, but then also uh so i i mentioned earlier i don't remember if i mentioned it recording or, or off but i done a uh, several podcasts focusing on like tbis the physical aspect and and uh and pts and, and all that and uh one of the guys that i done two podcasts with him and uh he was a a sarc uh so a, a, essentially a, a navy special operations medic uh highly trained guy he he'd uh deployed a couple times with like the force reconnaissance companies and then marsoc um you know bunch of decorations amazing human being uh his name is dan brown and he um and he taught me a ton about tbis so since you know he was a medic he's a very smart guy and he's kind of breaking it down and and talking about uh uh, even the training is, is sort of dangerous, the overpressurization, you know, shooting in confined spaces, yep. blowing off doors, that kind of thing. And, um, and he was a guy who, he had a podcast, uh, he'd done a, a ton of things like cold water therapy, breathing exercise, like all these different things that he was doing and trying to, to sort of figure out, um, how to, how to overcome some of these struggles, and, uh, and he's the kind of guy who's like, you know, suicide isn't the answer. Uh, there's a ton of solutions and, and just, you know, f- walk with me and figure it out. And unfortunately, uh, he ended up taking his own life in August of last year. Um, oh no. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, that, that kind of messed me up for a couple of weeks. Um, especially being that he he was a guy who was always talking about his experiences and, and sort of offering solutions to some of this stuff. And then when I, when I found out that he passed away, like, it just really messed me up.
3: Wow. Yeah. I mean, you, you said some, some powerful things and, and, you know, and, and really some beautiful things to just hear about, um, the impact that it's making for, um, you know, for us or, or, coming out and talking about it. Cause I think we have to, man. Um, again, we're, we're all fucking humans. I don't care what level of training you got, how badass you are. You're still a human being. And at, at, at some point or the other, I, I can tell you, I don't know, um, anybody who's gone through, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, of combat and walked out of it, you know, without a scar. Like I, I don't know anybody. I, I really don't. And, and if there is somebody who, at this point, is you know uh, was you know came out of all of that like the rest of us did, uh, straight into you know a high performer job and and living the the beautiful life, uh, I'd keep an eye on that person, right? Just you know because I, it, it hasn't. It's like a pen. It's a panacea, if you will. Like it. I, I don't think you can do that. Um, I think it. I think we need to to the point that you just mentioned with the you know with, with Don. Um, we got to keep an eye of it right like uh that that's extreme case and those worry people um i think it was just in pat mcnamara was on on the team house with those guys and he was he made a comment very similar but those guys that uh you know that sometimes put up front mm-hmm. um, but in in the background are still suffering yeah. right um you know and, and the key with the key to it is staying connected to other people like you cannot I don't think we can do this by ourselves right. and, and even retreating and even retreating with our family, I'll tell you that, you know, at least the experience that I have for me and the, the network around me, guys that have left these organizations and then, you know, um, are, are mending or a, that then didn't get divorced. Right. Cause if you get divorced, then at least you're, you're somewhat cutting away. If you would, you know, the marriage that unfortunately may have failed from that time, of your service that you dealt with all that bullshit Mm -hmm. Uh, and maybe you started a new life and that new family or that new spouse or maybe the new family maybe helps you balance because you're, you've, you've cut away that road. But a lot of guys that have then left with their families, I will tell you, like, and and it's simple, like I've been two years out. And then the year prior to retiring is when um, it was in the late uh, September um, 2019 when two of my two of my friends at the unit active duty guys um, died by suicide uh, one month apart and so that at home started the avalanche and we're still dealing with that avalanche right like as much as kind of the the um, training and the, the therapies and all the things that I've done to get better there are things that still because you know three years is nothing compared to you know, 17 years or whatever, 19 years of constantly being deployed. Um, And for me or the service member, it is hiding, concealing, shoving, stuffing down all of these things that we don't understand into, into a box and, and, and putting that box in a safe. Right. And so in time what's going on with, I I, I would submit for a lot of us is we're slowly opening these boxes up Mm -hmm. like there are times that, as a matter of fact, I said it was kind of uh, interesting. Um, I looked at my yearbook from the Marine Corps, right when I when I first went into into Paris Island, and there's about a hundred dudes or whatever, two hundred dudes in there in their faces, and uh, there's a moral injury to me because I don't know, I, I don't have. Well, I only till this afternoon, I didn't have contact with any of those people for thirty years, right. right? Like I only in the advent, and so there's a moral injury side to me that goes man, I don't know if any of these people died in combat,
0: right? Mm-hmm.
3: Like, So again, even as as, voice, as I am vocal about, you know, the mental health and, and a lot of this stuff, there are little things that will still trip me up or my son will come in and so, or I watch videos, you know, the, to your point with the DJ Shipley, like that one was really hard for me. I think it took me like two weeks to watch it, to finish it. Yeah. Because there are things that are said that will resonate at some point with somebody at a deep nerve, right? Layer, like, right. Like, and I think it was also, um, yeah, when he did it with John Ryan and Eddie Penny did the same thing where you're just, dude, you'll, you'll break out and you'll cry. It'll hit you in your core, but it's not that it just stung you. Then you'll take the next couple of days thinking about it, You'll go drink, you'll go right. Like you'll do something and then you you open up and you're like, well, let me try to process, let me try to process that feeling or what I've been shoving away because it manifests, you know. So anyway, um, I, I think the key is hopefully we we see more more of, of these guys and women, you know, men and women who've been in these situations. And and I would submit it's also not only, you know, the military guys. There's a lot of intelligence professionals or guys that have crossed both sectors, right? Guys that have come from special operations, went into the intelligence community, um, and they themselves are also suffering. There's a lot of suicides in the intelligence community, you right. know, like case officers and and guys who've done uh, special special activities, uh, um, you know, support or or or, or uh, intelligence officers that are also unfortunately it's hard to do. And so I think the more we talk, the more you know, podcasts like yours are, are, give us the ability to share the story highlight you know the successes and the failures but what we went through it um and then sort of the lessons learned like um and if i may like i i i would i would tell people that when they come back from a deployment or training or the loss of a friend um or a dark moment to reflect on it reflect on it then seek the talk therapy the talk therapy and the listen therapy ironically now it's just as important right you can you can easily listen to a podcast on your own. You know, your family doesn't know what you're doing. Your friends don't know what you're doing. You can do it on your drive and listen to other people's stories. The combat stories are cool. They're fun. You know, all the espionage shit, but the human behind it and listening to that and, and how they're getting better. I think that's how we uh, how we will all, all grow and heal and become more prepared for the future.
2: Yeah, you know, that's an excellent point. Um before we wrap up, I'll just say uh, a a friend of mine was a Mac V. Sog guy in, in Vietnam. And um, if anyone knows anything about those guys, it, you know, they did insane yeah. work in terms of, uh, you know, the danger to themselves and, and, you know, being deep behind enemy lines and, and, you know, in a a sort of horrible environment like a triple canopy jungle. Um, and uh, but, you know, it was a different time. Um you know, that was the generation right after World War II. Uh, yep. It was a different sort of uh, aspect of, like, how men communicate. Um, like, people didn't talk about Vietnam, really, e- even after they got home. Um, and uh, we did a podcast a few years ago. And uh, when we, I, I don't remember if he said this to me on the show or if he said it to me after, um, but he told me, like, that was the the first time or, you know, maybe he's spoken to one or two people over the years, but he said that was really the first time he's talked about his experiences in what, like 40 plus years. And, um, and he told me, yeah. And he, he was telling me like, you don't understand how helpful it's been just to talk about it. He's like, I I haven't told anybody any of this stuff. And, um, and, and that really resonated with me as well. Um, Yeah, so, and and then, you know, like you said, I I think that's a great point how you you spoke about, like, when you come back from something that was difficult to sort of go through it at that moment instead of, you know, putting it away somewhere in your mind. And then years later, it hits you, uh, you know, like an avalanche.
3: Yeah, and and I'll, I'll, you know, to add to that, like, I I today, like, so, and I think it may have been one of the questions you were going to ask, like, I probably shouldn't have stayed in that organization that long. Right. 20 years. That's, that's, that's as mu- that's as long as, you know, that's more than people normally stay in the military. Um, cause I don't think we have a lot of compared to the people that come in or those that serve the nation compared to those that, that, um, retire. I mean, it's 20 years and to stay in one place, that's a long time. The adrenaline fueled me, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, just the pure, uh, adrenaline of all of that was exciting the purposefulness um, I then I think there was just maybe some being a zombie, just being in the machine so long, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and um, that I, I didn't know how to quit. Um, and then I was scared to to quit because you lose an identity. It, you know that's part of actually what you're kind of talking about with a lot of these guys um and 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 girls is when we when you leave, you leave that identity at that unit, whichever right. one it is. you're no you are no longer like I, it took me a while, you know, to because they were at least where I came from. It was ingrained in a lot of muscle memory uh, because it also involved our family, the way we speak, we dress, everything right. It's it, it, you just don't leave it in the team room. So leaving behind an identity is really hard. Um, taking breaks was almost seen as weak. Right. Uh, even though it, it is um, recommended that you take leadership different leadership roles within your career, but that's just a machine ensuring it can survive. So it's going to need officers and enlisted to move up in the ranks so the machine can continue to move forward. It quite not necessarily is for the betterment of the human and their family, right? Um, If I would do it all over, you know, and I think when I first got to the unit, guys would, they were almost forced out. Um, to go back to the regular army or, or regular military, give back to you know where they came from with everything that they've learned in sort of special operations, and then come back in and take a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, that 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 knowledge kind of went out the door. I think in the in the GWAD. and then we, we didn't have enough numbers. We couldn't keep enough people because also I think past two thousand six, there were so many people quitting. Um, for a variety either financially they were getting really good contract work their families were divorcing them or guys you know probably saw the light and left but so I probably I probably should have left um, so I'm not having to deal um, with, with some of that uh, aftermath but hopefully into the future they can you know redesign things to take into consideration uh, because it is isn't. it is a big investment um, to you know uh, um, recruit assess train and maintain these people, and especially now into the future, we're going to be teaching these operators and some of these specialized, um, you know, jobs in the military more and more and more and more um, tools. We're going to give them more tools that the the industry, you know, the commercial side is going to want them. So we're going to have to kind of straddle that um, that side of it. But yeah, but for the mental health, um, and then, you know, I don't know if I had mentioned, like, I'm working on a this, this last summer, I decided to pursue a Ph.D., um in yeah in cyber psychology really focusing on the cognitive impacts of high assurance work right i.e everything we just talked about maybe for the last and a half an hour an hour a two points is how do i give back um in in my research to the community to identify some of these hard topics you know like occupational stress moral injury traumatic brain injury post-traumatic stress um, you know, longevity of, of operators and their families. Um, so yeah, so I appreciate that, that opportunity.
2: Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, yeah, that's phenomenal. So, so yeah, it was, it was really great to talk to you. Um, I I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, so if anyone listening wants to sort of keep up with you or, or check out what you got going on, uh, where can they go to do that? Like online?
3: Oh, I appreciate that, John. Yeah. So right now it's uh, mainly on Instagram. It's uh, you you can either Google or search for my name, Eric Miatis or Echo 9 Axiom. I did have another account um, on IG, which was Echo 9 Hopes, but I deleted that one. That one was supposed to be specific more just to people that didn't want to see anything with um, sort of uh, guns or or combat training. But um, the more the channel grew, the harder it's become to maintain connected with people. So right now I'm trying to focus on Echo 9, pushing out sort of, you know, in bits and pieces, my message, uh, and, and actually much more so on pointing to other resources. Like you mentioned, Wounded Warriors, uh, All Secure, and a Military Special Operations, Family Collaborative. So uh, uh, Instagram is one of them. And then if you do have a professional side, uh, the individual does and i'm on linkedin normally it takes me a little bit longer to vet that someone is real on linkedin um but you can reach me there um but yeah those are the the two best ways right now um or through or through MSF military special operations family collaborative which is um, i recommend people who want to see you know um the ecosystem of all of those other nonprofits that work together you can go to uh to uh, msoft see the information there and you can also email me from there but thanks for that opportunity to share some contact points
2: yeah yeah absolutely um uh, yeah it was great talking to you man uh and i I know the the audience you know they love to hear from guys uh you know with your sort of level of experience um so they'll find value in that and and like i said i appreciate you coming on and i want to thank you for your service as well
3: thank you john i appreciate it